You're listening to Mintersectional Podcast. I'm Noreen. And I'm Ashley. This is a podcast about having the necessary difficult conversations. And for those who believe in anti-oppression across all intersections. For those that live their truth every day, regardless of social constructs or pressure. For those that value different perspectives. For those that aim to be lifelong learners and believe in positive change. For those that are subversive as hell and constantly challenging the norm in every sphere of human existence. Welcome. Okay, and we are back. Uh, this is Intersectional Podcast. I am Noreen. I'm Ashley. And today we have a special guest, our first special guest, and I'm so happy she's here. Uh, this, her name is Zan, and she works in landscape architecture. So we're going to talk, be talking about a little bit about the environment and like designing around environments and things like that in the second half half of this um, episode. And uh, she is hot off her. Um, master's program right now. So hi, Zan. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> of course. Thank you for being here. Uh, so she's here remotely, um, if you can't already tell, because we're trying to stay safe in the midst of COVID and stuff. Uh, but yeah, welcome back. And what's the date today? August 9th? Yes, it's the 9th. It's so hard to keep track of the yeah, days. Yeah, <laughs> August 9th, 2020. So right now in Minnesota... We have, like, the the primaries are going to be wrapping up, and people are voting, and I just voted. I did my absentee ballot, and um, so we thought we could talk about that, and then maybe possibly some other things that are happening in the animal rights sphere right now mm-hmm. in not necessarily Minnesota, but, like, our neighbors Canada, which is... I mean, I think that's close enough. You're basically, like, honorary Minnesotans. <laughs> close enough. And then, um, yeah, and then we'll we'll talk to Zan about what she has to say. And I got a lot of questions for her as well. So, um, yeah, so voting. I did it. It was interesting. Zan, did you do it when you were out in Pennsylvania? Yeah. I did. I voted in Philadelphia. Got to vote for some delegates uh, under Bernie's law firm, which felt really good, um, but definitely mail it in. Uh, yeah, I think that's the way to go. Not really what's really going on in, nationally with all the ways that um, people are trying to limit mail-in voting, but it's definitely safer. Yeah, let's talk about that. What do you know about that? Because I heard a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I'll be honest, I'm not falling into town. There's a couple states in the city. Uh, I think it's a state in the city. Um, that are currently, they have expanded their mail-in capacity in, like, um, in some form. Uh, one place, it's, they've just sent everyone a form in which they can request their mail-in ballot. So everyone received that before you had to go and ask to even get the form to get the mail-in. I believe that's what happened. And then the other one is a case where they just sent everyone a mail-in ballot, uh, which Trump is trying to claim that there's only all this fraud in the, um, in the presidential election, if we do mail in, which is just not the case, the data does not show that. Um, and it's what would be sort of the ethical choice um, and the right choice in a pandemic to make sure that everyone votes. And also, I think we'll most likely increase voter turnout. Um, we historically have a very low voter turnout. Um, if people are just able to mail it in, it's much more um, understanding of people's work schedules and the pandemic. And I think it's just generally the right way to. Mm-hmm. Okay. But Trump is trying to fight back um, on those measures, which is just bizarre. 
What is he doing specifically? Um, I don't, I don't completely understand what he's doing, and I have not read enough on this, so I can't speak to it fully. But he, um, has at least vented publicly against it. I'm not sure if they can do if like federal federal government can do anything against um, the voting measures states are taking. I'm not actually sure what the sort of policy. Um, hierarchy is there, or is the government hierarchy in terms of um, voting? But I know that he's upset and is claiming that he's going to prevent mail-in, um, or is trying to like agitate for support against mail-in voting. It seems like I don't know. It's just like everything that he stands for, I am the opposite of, and I don't. Uh, and it doesn't make any sense to me because I, like I told you before, like I had a conversation with somebody where I tried to understand their perspective and they were a Trump supporter and everything like that. We had this really great conversation. It was super respectful and we shared our individual perspectives on things. And when it came down to it, I still couldn't fucking do it. I couldn't understand them. Like their perspective, like I don't understand what is his reasoning for not is it just to to win this next time around? Like, is that really the ultimate goal? Is just to like win and keep earning, and like he's just like this greedy asshole, which I don't doubt that he is. But if you really want, I mean, that I think like yeah, he doesn't care about anyone else but himself. I mean, that's very clear, right? He's a megalomaniac, and sort of right. Um, I will say I don't know that it is or is not, but I sometimes wonder if it would be if it's worse than if he just was an autocratic leader, but he just, like, full-on just, like, committed to it and actually, like, did the things in some ways. I, like, think it might be better than where we are now, which is just, like, the sort of wild hypocrisy, the, like, whiplash, um, and the sort of fatigue, and again, the privilege of having fatigue in this situation, right, like, taking your step back. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, really acknowledging privilege and how I'm, like, minimally impacted by this, personally, um, but, you know, that is, like, very real. Like, the fatigue of this presidency is just sort of extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, the way that it has unveiled and made, like, very explicit to a lot of people a lot of the um, inequities that they were able to ignore previously mm-hmm. uh, and force, I think, a lot of people to, like, confront some of the ways that they uh, maintain power through white supremacy in this country. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it, um, so... Yeah, voting, and you you did not vote yet? No, not yet. Oh, yeah. Are you, you're in a mail-in, though. Did you get your ballot? Yeah, I, um, I'm set up to do mail-in, because I already don't like people and being around them, and I cannot believe all of the drama surrounding wearing a piece of fabric on your face, like being in public. Yeah. It's just, like, the most simple, you know, measure that you can take, and yeah. people... Uh, I was watching videos last night about people um, freaking out about having to wear masks in public, and it's like, they act like they're getting their freedoms taken away, and it's like, ugh, I just, I can't wrap my head around it, like you said before, like, I just can't understand it, nope. I try, and I just, I don't, there are surgeons, there are professions who have to wear masks all the time, and they're fine, like, it's, it's a simple ask, mm-hmm. I don't know, yep, and, and there's, like, at the very least, even if you believe it doesn't do anything. Like, it's not doing, like, there's no reason to not do it. Mm-hmm. It's, one, like, the evidence, right, like, belief, like, the evidence shows that it does have some, even if it's minor impact, it does have an impact if you wear it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, even if you choose to disbelieve science, um, which a lot of people do, uh, and I don't 
it's still, it's like just like a courtesy to your community to wear this piece of fabric that some people are saying makes them feel safer. Like, to me, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why? Yeah, like, why wouldn't you? Exactly what you just said, Ashley. Like, there's yeah. no reason to not do it. And it's some people in your community are saying, I feel unsafe around you if you don't have this on. Like, why wouldn't you just put it on? Yeah, it's just a simple thing. Like, if it's going to make others more at ease, too, like, why wouldn't you feel better doing that? And, like, the way I've kind of looked at it, too, is, like, Right now, I mean, I'm drinking a smoothie with raspberry. I probably have raspberry seeds in my teeth. Well, if I have to go in public, I put a mask on. No one's going to know I have raspberry seeds in my teeth. And, like, I'm, I've got, like, some acne on my cheek right now. You know what? I put on the mask. No one's going to know that's there. Like, I don't know. And then I have one that says, like, dairy is scary. And that's been a conversation starter when I've been out grocery shopping and stuff, too. So I've seen lots of ones with, like, cool messages and things. So it's just, like, I wish people just embrace it. Mm-hmm. You know? I, I don't mind wearing it. I think one of the things that I do, like, though in this conversation, like, accessibility is that this definitely does affect people who have different, like, hearing and vocalization abilities, and so I think, like, there is space where, like, this is actually, like, is dangerous for some people, and so, like, making sure that that I include this conversation. For the majority of people, this is, like, a very low ask and, like, think around safety. I think, too, like... Right, there are pieces of that that we'll need to think about too in terms of accessibility and people who like read or who have like you know some hearing loss or are differently abled. Mm-hmm. It, it does impact those. Yes. Folks. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, I was talking with um, a friend, Shauna, recently, or messaging with her about that too. How this impacts the deaf community or people who rely really on reading lips. I mean, even me, I've had a difficult time. Like it's, you know, it kind of muffles you a little bit and it is tougher to hear people. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I've seen some masks that have kind of like the clear, it's like, it has a clear shield or whatever, which Mm -hmm. I think is great, but obviously not everybody's wearing them. So I can only imagine how isolating it already is, um, to be deaf, but then to have this extra kind of hurdle thrown in there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Um, the one thing about, like, I really like the mask, but this really doesn't make any sense because people can identify me by my tattoos. But if I go out in public, I'm like, nobody knows who I am. And (laughs) it's really just, it's not, it's pointless because usually people see my tattoos and if they know me well enough, they'll call me out in public and I'm like, shit. It definitely, like, for those of us, and I think you both are introverts, correct me if I'm wrong, but definitely, yep. like, are not, I think Noreen, you straddle that line, I'm not sure what you consider yourself, but, like, I definitely am, like, the, like, anonymity of the mask really appeals to me. Yeah, absolutely. It's, like, the fact that I can just, like, uh, I've, I've just moved back to Minnesota, and I'm now staying at my mother's house for a short term, so I used to see my family, my mother's had a kid, but before that, I've been living alone in a one-bedroom apartment with my cat basically not seen anyone since March, um, and I truly love it. Um, yep. <laughs> uh, so the pieces are, like, I only had to interact with people completely sort of anonymous in this, like, mask, especially in the winter with, like, a coat on, and that was, like, that was, like, the only time I'd interact with them. There was a part of that that was extremely appealing to me as a person who often, like, would prefer to not see other humans. So Yep, I totally feel that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, I go both ways, but on my days when I don't like seeing people, it's... I mean, if it's really hot outside right now in Minnesota, so I don't usually cover up completely. But for my job, like, when I'm working with clients and stuff, it's nice to know that they won't be able to identify me by my tattoos if I have, or, you know, even my face out in public for certain reasons, because there are some people that may not necessarily, like, I might not be the most favorable person in the world for them. 
to deal with. So <laughs> there is that edge to it. So masks and stuff. I mean, we talked about this last time. Just fucking wear it. Like, it's... it. it uh, there's no reason why you shouldn't be wearing a mask right now. And I just find it silly, too. There's mm-hmm. all these, like, billboards around town that's like, mask up Minnesota and, like, mm-hmm. wash your hands. It's like, who's spending money to put these messages out there? I think everybody is kind of... We know this mm-hmm. at this point. I don't know. <sighs> yep. And then there was... There have been... I live in northeast Minneapolis, and there's been a couple of bars already that, like, people are just hanging out inside and outside without their masks on because they're drinking, eating, and stuff. And then I think even, like, there's a couple of karaoke bars that went back to doing karaoke. No. (gasps) The microphone. They got shut down after a week of being open. Yep. There's a specific one that I'm talking about right now, but I'm not going to name them because they got shut down because they were... Like, you take a picture of the inside of that place and nobody was wearing a mask. And they're just, like, going back to the, the way that it used to be, you know? Mm-hmm. And the, the problem with COVID, I think, in my perspective, from what I'm understanding, there is a range of reactions that people are having body-wise to this thing. And it affects them later on down the line. Like, you hear about the... They did a little... I don't know how, like, longitudinal this re- research can be because COVID is so new. But, like, people are getting long-term effects of the of covid and they have reduced heart and lung capacity afterwards and i don't know if that eventually over so much time recovers so i can't speak to that like i said covid is so new but the the range of um symptoms that people are experiencing are unpredictable is basically what my point is and there's no reason not to wear a mask just because you know, you're hanging out with a bunch of people that are your age. We're fairly, you know, not, if you're not immunocompromised, you're fairly resilient when it comes to these things. But there are, there's still the, those outliers and people are taking their chances on. They're not hanging out around anybody that's going to be the outlier. Or maybe they have some older people that they're caring for, it, like, by, by proxy. Like, they're hanging out with parents who are taking care of other of their parents so their grandparents like I am and I can't chance making my grandparents sick like they will they will get sick with COVID and they will actually die Mm -hmm. and that just to me is horrifying it's it's not worth the chance of getting somebody infected Mm -hmm. and going back to our original talking point like I don't understand the perspective wanting to take that chance and I don't understand the it's my choice thing it's like it affects other people, so yeah. It's so, like I mean, it's like old school basic, and like me, probably not like our action. Right? It's like a social contract. We all give up some things for like the community, right? Like that's just part of being in community with people. Even if we don't want to talk about the government, like we make agreements. Mm-hmm. You don't like this is the other thing. It's like a lot of these people who talk about like the it's my choice, it's my right. They're also like personal property people, and like I would say like if you like. If we're going to take it to that, like, this is kind of a ridiculous argument, but I also think, like, kind of a key for this is, like, uh, if you believe in personal property, then my body's also my personal property, and you, like, breathing on me is the same thing as, my as, like, you trespassing on my land, mm-hmm. if we're going to be in that mm-hmm. mind, mind frame, right? So, that's where that argument completely breaks down for me, because we already have these accepted, like, boundaries and, like, commonalities. Mm-hmm. And so the spaces where people choose to, to like, 
plant their flag in the passport is also just very inconsistent, uh, very illogical, um, and not an actual keeping us in the values and tenets that they espouse otherwise in their lives. Mm-hmm. What do you both think about policing when it comes to COVID? Just because I saw, I'm bringing this up because I saw a couple people post on some social media platform of mine about how everybody that is inside a building, but this is kind of true though, um, inside or outside, mask or no mask, a building hanging out with groups of people is an asshole or something like that. And no exceptions, I think was the, the language used and I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm comfortable with that type of policing of this. I don't know if that's right um, or proper, or if it makes things better or worse, or if that's just somebody with a lot of anxiety around getting sick, which I totally understand. Just projecting that anxiety. I I don't know. Okay. Well, let's take a clarification. So, your policing, you mean in terms of like communities, like making rules for themselves, not, like, the police force. Right, yes. I was reading also this this other thing that I posted on my Instagram about uh, COVID, um, like, how not to be an asshole about COVID or something like that. And, like, policing was one of the things they were, like, don't police people, like, unless they're violating you personally. And I was, like, but how far does that go if people are out in bars and shit and, like, they're doing karaoke, and they're clearly not wearing a mask. Like, do I get to say that's violating my personal... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not totally comfortable with policing in this either, because I think that is, like, so tied up with the institution. So just the idea of, like, what is your level of community responsibility and what is the level of, like, community enforcement. Right. Maybe so we can talk about this, or, like, at what point can I, like, talk to someone who's, like, on the streets so that we're sharing some space, and which brings us into, like, yeah... Like, we're sharing space together. Like, at what point do, do, like, does the action that they're taking, um, is it impacting me? Kind of, do I have a say in that? Right? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, so I think for me, like, I'm definitely, like, the big thing out of this is there are still a lot of unknowns. And exactly what you just said, too, like, we don't even know the long-term impacts of this. But community spread is very much is one of the knowns, right? Like, there are a lot of people who carry it who are asymptomatic who do not know they have it. Right. You can carry, you can spread out the surface. So, like, you know, I think there are always any exceptions and people who, like, will, like, transgress any, like, boundaries that are established. Um, but I think conversations are really important in community guidelines in a situation like this. And I think, like, sort of thinking about that expansively. Um, you know, I, I, like, think about people at bars who, I'm not at the bar, but they're, you know, this is how there was a huge outbreak in South Korea after they thought they could take it because they had someone, one person, one person had it, they needed contact trace, one person had it, and it spread, and they had a huge outbreak because they were a super spreader, and they got everyone at the bar sick, and everyone went and did their grocery shopping the next Saturday morning, and they got everyone at the grocery store sick. Because we know there's community spread, like, I do think that we should err on the side of the precautionary principle. We err on the side of being more strict with ourselves, and when and, like, err on the side of safety for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not, like, it sucks. But, like, I think, like, yeah, like, I've definitely said things when I see people who, like, are, t- like, touching. You know, I try to do it respectfully, but it's, like, you, and, and we don't always know, like, people do have to pot. It's only people have, like, different, you know, we don't know what sort of configurations people are in. But, like, I do think, like, I have, like, had the experience of walking through it you know, the middle of the street in downtown Philadelphia, and there's people, like, at tables, like, really 
most of it are clearly breathing, clearly friendly, hanging out, drinking mm-hmm. stuff. I've been at a protest earlier, right? So, like, the sort of contrast of, like, going to a protest where people are all masked up, are all gloved, or there's tons of hand sanitizers available, everyone's maintaining six feet of distance, and then you walk past, like, tables packed with people, like, drinking in the afternoon. Um, it was pretty extreme, and, like, you know, it's not even just that it was, like, a protest and, like, a social activity, just, like, the level of care at one space and, like, respect for each other versus, like, what looks like a really sort of uh, very self-centered act of, like, just sort of coming together in this space that was really about, like, oh, I'm, like, breaking free of my, like, quarantine and not, like, I still need to care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. That that yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. Um, in regards to the protests, did you you said you participated in protests in, in Philadelphia? Okay, and then I participated in one here, and it was exactly that kind of environment. Um, it was a George Floyd pr- protest, and people were masked up fully. They a lot of them had gloves on, and people were going around with hand sanitizer the entire time. But you just wonder, is that even really helping? Or is the fact that we're even chancing contact with people being that close, is that what fucks us over? Like, we never really know, right? Like, we never know what gets people actually sick. Is it also their responsibility to take care of their fucking bodies? And... And, like, how far do we go to the policing? Like, take care of yourself so you don't get sick, or don't be around people so you don't get sick, or... To me, it just opens up a whole world, a a whole conversation around that comes back to, for me, don't fucking police people, because you never know what actually really gets it spread. But, you know, the close proximity thing is what we know to be the... probably not one of, if not the number one precursor to contracting you know yeah it's been just a weird year like just trying to navigate this and like respect everybody's boundaries and have people respect your boundaries Mm -hmm. like I had somebody who was you know didn't have a mask on and I did and I was you know remaining pretty distant and he kept taking a step closer and I would take a step back and he would take a step closer and I said you know can you please just keep your distance like I shouldn't Mm -hmm. even have to say that you'd think that someone would pick up on your like social cues like I'm I'm backing up you know but, I don't know, it's just, I've had to, like, be pretty blunt with people, um, and people sometimes get defensive, and it's like, well, better safe than sorry, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I also, too, think that it's our period of reason just have to normalize having this conversation, so you're talking about normalizing all these things, which is, like, we don't know what people's boundaries are, and, and because we are reopening, and I think, like, there are degrees, even within the sort of, like, community enforcement, like, community, like, agreed upon, like, what, you know, what works for people and the precautionary principle, like, we still have to go to the grocery store. There's some of people, like, you know, this is going to be long. We're still looking at, like, a long time of this, so things like people going for walks. So there are ways which we're, like, we are going to have to have those conversations, and mm-hmm. I think just we really have to find about, like, yeah, also, like, with masks on, sometimes people are more visual, right? Like, if you're a person who, like, relies on someone's facial expressions to get your social cues, which are some people over body language, like, you're missing part of the face, so you need not see. Mm-hmm. So I think just having the conversations and just being really friendly, like, this is my comfort level mm-hmm. um, as we negotiate this, because you're also not in the community guidelines and enforcement model, or in the sort of, like, wild, just, like, everyone's doing whatever they're comfortable with right now mm-hmm. in this country, which is why we're seeing such huge spikes again. Yep. And so I think really just being comfortable about saying, like, this is my boundary. And, like, I do wish that we were in a world where, like, that, you know, but, but I kind of, like, it's, you know, it's, it's a clear my alter, it's like, here's my boundary, and, like, please tell me what yours is out of, like, respect. And for me, you're into, like, I think you were saying earlier, like, 
the difference for me is like this is all if we think about this all as a, a care model right going to protest is an act of care yeah right staying home is an act of care during a pandemic and going to a protest is an act of care during an uprising for me like i do think that makes that there's a very large difference between going out socially and being in like a large group versus going out to protest in a large group and mm-hmm. The care model for me, if you're if we're moving from a place of care, would be unless I'm going out to get like food or sustenance or the things that I need to keep living myself or, or like my my household needs. Um, that's like the care model would be to stay inside to, to like isolate as much while still having like some outdoor activities. Humans need that. I need that. Um, and then the care model would be like when the community is in, in um, when we're being asked to show up physically but safely for members of our community who are not being cared for by society at large, then the act of care is to show up. And I think those are not incompatible models. Like to say, stay home unless you're going because there's a, there's a justice issue and a care issue. To show up for those things and to stay home for other things, that feels very much an alignment for me. And one thing I wanted to mention while we're on this topic is the Renaissance Festival is still set to go on. Oh my God. And are you serious? Yeah. And they Yep, it is a nightmare. They pushed the date back two weeks, so I think it's um like that would help. Yeah. Oh okay. And uh (laughs) so uh Right. And obviously I take well, we all probably take issue with the Renaissance Festival considering that they have um elephant, camel and llama rides as well as petting zoos and then or a petting zoo and then they've got like fur stores and People are chowing down on turkeys' legs and just, like, it's, there's so much um, exploitation that occurs at this festival, but the fact that everything else is getting canceled, but they're just adamant about letting it continue. And so um, I reached out to the mayor of Shakopee, and he basically said, oh, you need to talk to Dave Beers, this commissioner. So emailed him. He kind of dodged several of my questions. And um, apparently the RunFest hasn't um, submitted an acceptable, like, COVID preparedness plan yet. And we're, like, you know, a little less than a month away from when they're opening, which I think is totally irresponsible. um, Because just alone they have over a 1,000 employees between people running the booths and, like, the entertainers and everything. So they're saying they're limiting it to 250 people. Running shit? Or um, to, like, be there. Um, to be properly distanced, but if people are getting on these animals and <clears throat> the line just for the animal rides themselves, like, is always really long. I just don't see how they're going to be having, like, a petting zoo and riding these animals, like, with people just nonstop touching them, how they can possibly be safe, so. I don't understand how it's fiscally worth it. That, and that's what I'm wondering. I don't, I just, they need to just call it for a year. Yeah. And, like, like the state fair did, right? I heard that the state fair is not happening. Like Correct. large community events, and also, I mean, I don't actually know the decision, but isn't it still like you can't gather? Um, yeah, you I can't have gatherings more than I think fifty people until March of next year. Like that happened. Mm-hmm. So does Minnesota not have that? I don't know what it went to. Um, I guess I don't know what the status is right now um, as to limits on number of people. I mean, I also imagine that's going to be a huge labor issue. Like, who's going to care for, like, if the animals are there, like, who's going to care for them? If they're cutting their workforce by a quarter, what does that mean to in terms of, like, exploitation of humans and non-human animals? Like, 
anybody listening um, is a little outraged with the Renaissance Festival, please feel free to email them. It's just info at renaissancefestival.com. Um, do they have a number they can call? I feel like calling yeah. is so much more effective. Yeah. They can um, my, the um, Animal Rights Coalition has a post that has like contact info, including emails and phone numbers too. So Great. yeah, if anybody wants to check that out, um, the more people they hear from, the more pressure will be put on. So mm-hmm. And then Sturgis is going on now, too. Oh, so yeah. hundreds of thousands of people are riding motorcycles and, you know, going to bars. And I, the pictures that I saw, there are no masks. Um, so that's we, were, we were just talking about that, Zan. <sighs> yeah. Uh, yeah. so much controversy surrounding this people saying oh this is the government's excuse they're gonna start putting 
chips in people and it's like well do you realize like the devices that we're carrying around on the daily like there's so many ways that they already have our information like what and why do so many of these people like especially people who aren't like activists and stuff what are they worried about like what are they going to know or find out about you like that I don't know it's just it's bizarre (laughs) yeah um so the the other the um in terms of like animal rights and stuff Mm. there was somebody that uh, died recently up in, we were going to talk about her. Yeah. Um, so what, what can you, yeah, can you um, a Canadian activist, Regan Russell was killed by a slaughter truck driver on June 19th. Um, she and others were holding a vigil with the save movement outside, um, a slaughterhouse near Burlington, Ontario, uh, Fearman slaughterhouse, pig slaughterhouse. And, um, They usually, you know, stop the trucks and they give water to the pigs and, you know, take documentation and things like this. And I don't, the video has not been released to the public, but um, from what I've heard from different people who were there, know people who were there, is that, you know, she was near the front of the truck and the truck was stopped and the truck all of a sudden just took off and hit her and cut her body in half and drug her body underneath the truck. Um, Extremely traumatizing, obviously, for her friends um, that were there and witnessed this. And um, the trucker basically has gotten a slap on the wrist. He had no criminal charges. Um, The, her murder came like just days after this bill, Bill 156 was passed. Um, This bill penalizes activists exposing animal cruelty. Um, So, Basically, we're thinking that um, a lot of these truckers feel emboldened to kind of, you know, get away with literal murder because, well, this bill is going to protect them. And um, since then, yeah, just uh, recently they've had, these truckers had a counter protest to a recent vigil that they had outside the slaughterhouse and they had disgusting signs, some saying like, Regan committed suicide and things like this, and it's just obviously really upsetting to the activists that are there, but just so heartless. Like, a woman died, and you're going to be out there just mocking her death and mocking these activists, and um, they started a GoFundMe for the trucker, and it's at over $100,000 right now. Um, But yeah, if you go to... A GoFundMe for the fucking trucker who killed her. Right, yeah, and his name has not been released either. His name is being protected... Holy fuck. Um, yeah. So if you, if anybody is interested in looking into more of this, um, if you go to Toronto Pig Save on Instagram, in their bio they have um, a couple links to some petitions. Um, so I urge you guys to check that out. But yeah, just really, really disturbing. Um, yeah, it, it's scary because, um, you know, I do these vigils as well. And just to think that, like, um, if I lived a few hours north, I could be fined, like, up to $25,000 just for taking photos of pigs outside of a slaughter truck, like, mm-hmm. minutes before they're going to be murdered. Like, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, I don't understand why these industries are, you know, they obviously thrive on secrecy. Um, there's total lack of transparency, and um, I don't honestly know what they're worried about with activists exposing this stuff because there's been so many undercover investigations yet they're allowed to continue on business as usual. Like, it hardly has an impact, um, especially considering our government 
gives bailouts um, to these industries. Like more animals are literally being killed than ever before, um, due in large part to these bailouts. So I think that lobbying is really important and like speaking to your representatives and trying to get things like in Minneapolis, we're trying to pass a fur ban. Um, just starting to chip away, like um, some people think going after single issues is um, speciesist, um, but you, you can't, we can't expect um, a big win at once. We have to kind of chip away at it and take what we can get when we can get it. So mm -hmm. um, I definitely urge people to look up Vegan Justice League. There's Agriculture Fairness Alliance, and I learned about these from this um, activist, Connie Spence. She's Vegan Batgirl on um, social media and on YouTube as well, and she talks a lot about these bailouts and how they're just, they, they can't fail the way that they're set up, the animal ag industry. So um, I think that's a big reason why the animal rights movement hasn't really been making massive strides. You know, in different cities we've had wins here and there, but in the grand scheme of things, it isn't really having an effect. So we need to lobby, and we need to know our representatives, and we need to like get serious about this because, you know, actual change isn't really happening. And um, with climate change, and they're talking fishless oceans by 2050, it's, you know, we we don't have time to waste. So mm -hmm. that's something I've been very passionate about is just getting involved locally. Um, and I wish I would have known this years ago. Like I, I feel like I almost like kind of wasted some of my um, years of activism just like doing protests and stuff because there has to it's definitely a piece of the puzzle but there has to be so much more to it mm -hmm. um so yeah highly recommend checking out those pages i mentioned i'm definitely gonna look into that because i think that's something i've been thinking about too ashley and i would love to talk to you more about now or like later on but just um how much i think in my early 20s and late teens i identified as an activist and now i think of myself more as like an organizer being organized and like mm -hmm. that there's sort of strong difference between the two um and that i do wish like i had had a different theory of change early on and had been able to like really embed myself in this process but i think i could you know or a lot of people like i think for me a lot of the activism when i was younger was about like sort of the performance of myself like an anger i had sort of expressing it in this like um in a way that's important and was coming from a place of like you know awareness raising like wanting to have conversations and definitely wasn't that i didn't think anything was going to come of it but sort of the reality of the world that we live in you know and it is a long game right like we're not going to have overnight change so how do we you know focus on only the things that will get us closer right like not taking partial measures you know not doing welfare tactics not doing any of these things but you know saying like it's not it's not single issue if the goal is liberation for all yes right but it's that we're always on that path mm -hmm. and we can acknowledge like we can say like this is something that we can work on that's like a way to keep moving forward um because it isn't going to happen overnight and i think that's also true for like racial justice for um you know questions of like white supremacy and misogyny or Right? Like, it's always, you, you aim towards liberation, and you have to check yourself and check in with others that you're organizing and working with. Like, is this moving towards that end goal? But knowing that that thing is, like, we won't ever see it in our lifetime, I don't think. And we don't, and I, like, to your point, actually, like, we don't have time, but I still don't think we're going to get there. And then, like, yeah. it brings me such sadness and rage. But, like, that doesn't mean that we can't get closer. Mm -hmm. And it's that, like, always aim for that, like, that far or, you know, that total liberation, but all the same, like, getting partway there is still getting partway there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. And that some people have been, you know, because I'm pretty vocal about how I don't really have hope for the world because 
there's just not enough people that care, and, like, we're already so far past, I mean, there's so many cities that have had their record, um, you know, hottest days ever recorded this year, um, it's just apparent in so many different aspects, but, like, just because I don't have hope that, you know, I'm not going to see what I want to see by the time I'm gone doesn't mean I'm not going to try and do what I personally can to take responsibility and try to urge others to do the same because obviously it's going to help. But I I think it, the other thing that I kind of, I love that we're having this conversation and Zan, I'm so thankful that you're joining us because I think you're just really articulate and much more than I am right now this morning. Um, just because I haven't had enough coffee yet, clearly. But the whole idea that, I mean, when we talk about even the work that I do and my paid work, the idea that we need to be um, engaging our legislators as constituents and knowing who to engage and knowing how they go in and fight for the issues that we really care about right now. Um, we had a uh, legislative recap they had a so covid covid has messed with everything and a lot of the uh the legislative considerations are now um gearing toward how do we incorporate things and do things safely in the midst of covid and then also another like hot topic was obviously police brutality in minnesota and knowing uh who has uh like minds to us, at, you know, as, as as I do as a social worker or a therapist or what have you, or even a um, social justice proponent, uh, knowing who to talk to about that, knowing who can go in there and fight for that, and knowing who to educate. Because I think the one thing that we, I, I have thought in the past is that these people who go in and make these big policy changes on a huge macro level um, are people who are maybe unreachable to an extent. Like when I called uh, a representative or emailed a representative, I got really fired up and sent like huge long emails in regards to police brutality because I work alongside police in my paid work and Minneapolis police in general. So I can speak to a lot of the, the shitty stuff that they've done. Um, but in any case, I emailed them and got, like, the default, like, thank you for emailing, blah, 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 you know, this is a really, we get lots of emails a day, and I'm like, okay, cool, well, at least I did it, but when we got together, with my organization got together over Zoom with these representatives, we had two representatives and one policy worker who works for a huge nonprofit organization um, here in Minnesota, they were really receptive to listening, because we are supposed to be educating them. And I, I mean, maybe I've come around to this a little slower than other people, but and maybe people don't see the point. But I really think that just gauging on their reaction to the information that we were giving them, because we were, I'm a first responder at my job in addition to being a social worker. Um, there's a lot of things that we have very strong feelings about in terms of our personal safety going out into the community and doing services right now. And they were super receptive, and they're like, you need to call me and we need to have a conversation like one-on-one about this. Like when, um, it, there were several things brought up and then in regards to, they wanted to listen to what I had to say about police brutality in regards to what I've experienced with Minneapolis police department. And that to me was super heartening, mm-hmm. but yeah, it is this really, incre- it's going to be this really incremental like change systemically. If we're talking about big macro change, it's not going to be overnight as what you guys just said. Mm-hmm. Um, which is 
kind of disheartening, but also it's heartening to know that there are people that are out there fighting for the same things that we want to see have happen. Mm -hmm. And these are, like, the one of the women is from, I mean, Edina's a pretty, she's from Edina. She grew up in um, North Minneapolis when she was young and had a, uh, a chemically addicted mother. But, she, like, her background lends itself to giving a shit about all of these things because she lived in a diverse neighborhood in North Minneapolis, um, this representative. And she's just, like, so fiery. And she, like, holds... Republican representatives over the flames when she's... I've seen her, like, um, do her stuff, and she's just incredible. So there are people. Yeah. I guess is my point. Yeah. The other two things for this conversation, too, is, like, or three things. Mm-hmm. Like, right, also, the system is fucked, right? So, like, right. all this is to say, like, I think we all would agree, like, the system is fucked, mm-hmm. and, like, right, because that's a huge critique often from, like, sort of more, like, left socialist organized anarchists are, like, how do you, like, the system is so flawed, like, we need a full revolution, or, like, all we're doing is incremental change, and I think, yes, and, you know, there's still, I think there's still value in, like, the harm reduction model of, like, the care model, what can we do now while still working towards, and I think that's kind of Mm -hmm. the piece, the other thing is, like, obviously all this is happening with, like, you know, as we're saying, like, we had this sort of awakening into organizing, and, like, people have been organizing this community for, like, decades, centuries, right? Like, especially around the issues that we care about and are talking about today. And so just that being, like, really important part of these conversations, I think, is just saying, like, this has been going on for a long time, right? And, like, we're stepping in, and at some point we'll be gone, but other people will keep doing that work. And I think that, to me, is, like, so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, and this is something that I've been uh, encountering in some of the other work that I'm doing on a more sort of policy level is access, right? Like, yes, people are there to learn, but also there's a lot of gatekeeping as to who can have those conversations, right? And, like, the privilege of, like, your particular job giving you an expertise that makes you someone who is afforded the opportunity to give comment, and I don't think that is available to everyone, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, as a person with multiple degrees, when I say something to someone and it's like, comes cited with facts and, like, a personal experience and I can speak to it in a way that sounds convincing, I have or access, or someone else who maybe doesn't have, like, a particular sort of shininess to them, and so, like, that is also true, right? Like, you know, I don't know the particular people you're speaking to during, but, like, I do think, again, it's, it's like, you are speaking on your particular expertise, but I also think I'm not sure that everyone would be given the same opportunity to speak on their expertise. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I think, like, we also need to think about this, like, sort of the system that we're at that level, too, like, the system we're working within, and, like, how does, right, like, as a designer, community meetings are really important, but who, something that I talk about, it's, like, how, how do you even handle community meetings, because who gets to go to those are people who don't have night shifts, who, like, can afford childcare, who yep. can get to the meetings, who can spend hours, mm-hmm. who know enough about, who, like, had time mm-hmm. to read, whatever, who have the language access to whatever the documents, the language the documents are, and, I mean, these are all huge questions around, like, even just democratic practices and practices of, like, representation um, mm-hmm. that are really important to these conversations, too, right? But, mm-hmm. I, like, I don't even know what to necessarily do with that, except, like, to say that that's real and we have to think about it and be thinking about it as we do this work. I don't know. I mean, you know, even... I haven't found a way out of that. There's value in naming it. I mean, absolutely, there's value in talking and even naming it. So I, 
I, I appreciate you bringing it up. I, you know, the one thing that we talk about when we talk about work with the legislator also is bringing in people who are, you know, I have the privilege to be able to speak with these representatives via Zoom and bringing in people who, like, every day live this life. And are we exploiting? Like, that's another thing. Like, do we want to bring in people who really it's just a, it's such a hard thing because you don't want to you don't want to exploit the the people that this shit actually comes down upon um and that speaks to being a good ally and or um accomplice in all of this um and like going back and really knowing what what you um i guess uh people would want you to be doing for them I, you know, you keep stepping up as a white person to try to advocate for the people that you serve, at least in my position, and um, you always do it wrong a little bit. I mean, and that's part of the learning process. Like, there's so many things I do wrong in advocating for uh, people of color or those with different abilities or what have you, um, even for, like, people who are aged, like, my parents... If the, I was listening to a podcast that said, like, if COVID's shown us anything, it showed us, like, how much of a shit we do not give for people who are older. Mm. <laughs> and that's the other thing. Like, how do they want us to advocate for them? And I think about my parents and how they're getting older. They're both about to retire. Um, so, yeah. There is a, um, I a lot of the social issues that just injustices that I think a lot of us, because of our privilege, are able to just ignore. Mm-hmm. But, like, on a human scale in particular. Oh, for um, sure. Like, around, like, race, age, gender, and definitely. And one of the things that has stuck with me in, like, the particular age is I read, there was an article, I think probably in March, that I read, and I don't know the source, um, so I can't point you to it specifically. But they talked about senior centers in New York City and the closure of senior centers for a lot of um, elderly New York residents. Uh, that was like they would go there every day and it was their social like that was their community that was their social network and that was what they that was how they spent their time was at these centers um and they were going into complete isolation with no outside contact at that point when the centers closed down and that was a big concern but not sort of at the top of the list in COVID about what to do because we do I think even at large, like, that is not a group that we care about as much, right? It's not going to get headlines that the closure of senior centers is impacting thousands and thousands of people, but we're not going to talk about that mm-hmm. because of other things. And I do think the fact that Hispanic and black kids are hospitalized or retire rates than white kids with COVID is also, like, a serious issue. It talks about health injustice and environmental injustice. Um, and so it's also hard because we're in a moment, too, where, where we haven't, you know, grappled with and addressed a lot of these issues, and they're all now, like, present at once in an extremely like intense way right that there's not time to implement things slowly um and that's something that's been for me like extremely apparent that i mean most of this we should have done decades ago and now we're in a moment where we have to kind of do it all at once and we're just not doing anything and so it's getting so much worse and we're just seeing it and it's this intensification of time right things that would normally happen over a decade are happening in like a year period Mm -hmm. it's really 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 intense to experience and go through it to also see like not enough is happening to address any of these things mm-hmm. um, and that we're all implicated in that non-action mm-hmm. yeah um, it's 
really overwhelming. Like you said, there's so many issues and everything's just coming to a head. And it's like, I feel that animal rights, like speaking out on that, people are kind of, they don't want to hear about it because there's lots of human issues, not realizing that there are plenty of human rights issues embedded in, like a ton of human rights issues embedded in animal egg. Um, So I'm trying to do my best to speak on that aspect more. Um, In protest, have signs that, you know, allude to the human rights issues as well, but it's hard because there's so many issues that I myself would like to advocate for and fight for, but I'm realizing too that I'm more effective if I get very direct in like my goals and what I want to do because we can't do it all. Um, So it's tough and I think that the overwhelm leads to a lot of inaction from people too because they don't know what to do and like with Mm -hmm. COVID that just presents this whole other layer of like restrictions and it's just really difficult, um, it's a, especially being an empath, um, as you guys know, like, it's just, everything's really heavy, and it's just hard to know what, what to do in the moment, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. <sighs> yep. It's impossible, but, like, it, you know, it is, but, like, yeah. we're all still doing things, right, and, like, we're doing what we can, and I, like, I do believe, I hope, and I know some people who are doing everything they can. Uh, and I think we will move forward. Um, um, but, it, yeah, it, it's, like, a weird moment because I do think, like, certain things are taking sort of primacy and so targeting, right? But it is, like, there's a slaughterhouses where a bunch of workers, because of unsafe conditions, a bunch of workers are, um, contracted COVID and are now, like, sick and have died. And, you know, these, like, labor abuses that are rampant in the animal industry are also becoming apparent because of the infection rates mm-hmm. and the um, spreading rates. So, so yeah, again, they're all linked, right? Yeah. <laughs> and doing something is better than doing nothing. Yeah. That's what I just keep telling myself. Like, <sighs> that's a good way of looking at it. <sighs> yeah. Doing something is better than doing nothing. That relates a little bit to one of the things that I spent some time thinking about, and it's a project that I want to return to now that I'm out of school and I have a little more time uh, and think. Is of relevance now, um, but I was doing some work last summer on agriculture and landscape. Um, so landscape architecture is both a very narrow and very broadly defined discipline. I still actually personally have a hard time defining it myself explicitly uh, as like a discipline or a profession or a field, and I feel like each of those I have a different response to, which is confusing to me. Um, I tend to say I'm a designer. Uh, but we don't talk about agriculture and landscape architecture. A lot of um, like parks and waterfronts, and like this this idea of like resiliency and like greening urban spaces. And a lot of it is still very much tied up into a particular Eurocentric idea of like the sort of what I would call like the post commons. Right there's the commons, and this idea that like all settlements need a space that's green and sort of nature in the city um, for these like large expansive parks we can kind of cultivate wilderness or nature, quote, um, so within all of that, the profession for the most part doesn't, there are some, obviously some people, right, caveat is, like, some people are doing this work, I think, but by and large, and especially in education, we don't really talk about agriculture, which is the single largest land use, um, by percent in the U.S., I believe that's the case, um, both animal agriculture and crop-based agriculture, um, and so, or it's one of the top, I can't remember, if it's the top, uh, off the top of my head right now. And so we were trying to kind of think about why that is, that is 
like people who do work on the idea of like space and humans and non-humans and like multi-species sharing and, the, and like resiliency uh, really don't address uh, agriculture at all, specifically like animal agriculture. Uh, and, you know, didn't really address that question, but ended up doing some work around like land use and thinking and doing research on propositions that people have for feeding um, as the population increases. And a lot of that relying on intensifying animal egg uh, because they're not taking an ethical lens to that, right? So it's thinking about CAFOs um, and increasing CAFOs and intensifying them. and um, Or, like, the other model is essentially, like, none of us can ever have meat skin, have flesh skin. Obviously, we all know that it's mentioned ecofeminism like environmental considerations is a feminist issue um 1000 percent. i mean it's like you just said it's all connected and animal agriculture uh the sustainability of it is coming like that's that issues i feel like is coming to a head in my circles and is a really big topic of uh discussion um also it's such a resource depletion like a major resource depletion and i feel like Maybe it's just because I've been vegan for, you know, more than a decade, but I feel like it's such an antiquated, to me, it just doesn't make environmental sense anymore. Um, and the the consideration of landscape architecture with the, um, like, the lens of environmental sustainability should be front, form, like, at the front of things right now when it comes to building um I don't know, parks and, like, starting communities and things like that, and, and even doing a different way of farming. 
you know, farming uh, different crops and not vertical farming. Yeah, but yeah, and and um, I know that we when you were uh, talking to me a while ago about um, even how we bury people. Like, is there a, a way that we can do that differently? I know that when you were talking about your project, it was more of, like, a design thing, right? Like, to have it a holistical structure of these bodies being buried. But, like, wasn't that for the unnamed deceased yeah. people? Which I also thought was a really interesting way to, like, honor them. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, so, if, if we want to talk about burial, uh, there aren't, there isn't space, uh, most people have different practices uh, around burial. Um, or most communities, I'd say the U.S. is fairly exceptional in this. And most, I, I probably, I can also say um, most settler states um, have a different practice because they're relatively newer, quote, um, as, like, understood now, um, even though they were occupied territories well before settlers came. And so because of the sort of expansiveness of these territories, people just, like, have been burying, there's, like, large graves, and graveyards, cemeteries, uh, everyone's buried and sort of stays in their plot forever, is the model that the U.S. has, um, by and large, and that's not true in <laughs> a lot of other places, and went to the Netherlands, uh, you essentially rent your, the plot for the body for a seven-year period, and then the body is dug back up, set to the boneyard, and that plot is now open for another body because the morning rituals differ. Uh, also, burial practices vary based on sort of environmental impacts, right? You have things like cremation, which takes a lot of energy. Also, it off gases and sends things into the air. So that's not great. Um, burial is like, okay, green burial is better, uh, but you do have things like mercury from teeth getting into the ground like there's a they did test in a cemetery in London but that was sort of surrounding the entire the soil was all contaminated from like things that had been put into human bodies that were not buried and had completely contaminated the soil I know I, I never even thought about that <laughs> but it's real right wow. like that's yeah yeah so like it, like there's just so many things or like our practices that we and like also especially in the US like when we're talking about this in the context of the United States Right? Like, the United States is quite young, and so all of our sort of, like, cultural heritage practices are also quite young, and, like, wouldn't be that difficult to, like, change. Um, I think, like, green burials are fine, um, which is you should bury bodies after they blend a tree. However, often the tree dies because human bodies are very toxic. Mm. <laughs> all the things that we take in over our lifetime. Um, so my personal pitch is for alkaline hydrolysis, which is essentially a low-energy version of cremation that there's, like, um, different chemicals are put into a vat that are, like, fine after the process to eat essentially compost. Um, and the, it's, like, bone powder and sludge are the two remaining uh, mm. pieces. Um, Interesting. But I don't know. Like, yeah. I don't know. I just think we have all these practices in this country that are, I do globally, but, you know, my, my knowledge is mostly United States-based. Um, and... So many of these practices we just take for granted, and they're like not that old. And if we really want to talk about like heritage, it's also like they were all created because people came to this country and like started new practices, right? Like this country is specific to like post 18th century and beyond. So it's not hard to like come up with new ways. It's just that you know, people just kind of compulsively obsess around particular ways of practicing, right? And that's true with animal agriculture too, right? Like 
other places because of this idea of like endless territory and that's just like not the case and also like is that sustainable and um has like huge issues right like we talked about papers earlier which are concentrated animal feedlots uh, feeding operations, sorry. And they have like huge manure pools, which are also an environmental justice issue because people who live near these get respiratory issues. Like, it's also very difficult to just breathe in that comfort and like daily like, safety issue. Um, we have, you know, people dump toxins, fertilizers run into, from fields into like the trenches, into rivers. And then you have algal blooms. You have also like the dead zone up at the, the, the rivers and they hit the ocean because all the contaminants that lead into it, a lot of it from agriculture and also just the news generally. Humans. Um, you have like, if we're talking also about like eco feminism, eco socialism, and environmental justice, like a lot of where non white people live. Mm-hmm. Not at 100%, but places like Cancer Alley, which is predominantly black brown folks, mostly black, I believe, who have high instances of, have high instances of cancer because they have proximities to specific pollutants. You have higher uh, instances of asthma and a lot of black children in cities because they live in spaces where um, they're exposed to toxins. Like, these are all very real environment, like, questions of environment, questions of environment, questions of, like, land use and space and justice that, um, you know, we don't talk about. And then, like, again, like, bringing code back to this, like, why are where black children be hospitalized. Well, a lot of it is when they have higher asthma rates, right? So, like, this is being community that have been intentionally exposed to toxins and chemical irritants for decades. And now, like, one of the repercussions is they're dying and being hospitalized at higher rates than white children. Um, you know, I will say, like, the study did not say that is why. Um, they did say that the asthma was one of the underlying conditions, and we can, I think, make the inference that because asthma is higher from, impact from exposure that thus the children who have asthma are getting are being hospitalized with COVID at higher rates. Um, I mean that's all true and it's all it's all also like great. It's about animals, it's about chemicals, it's about all the ways that they like use land and think of it as something to be used and depleted. Oh my god, I just you gave me so many things to think about just now. And you just, uh, last, yesterday, actually, the group DXE, Direct Action Everywhere, they, um, some of the activists, they had gathered 50 gallons of feces from a manure lagoon at a Smithfield farm, and they went to the CEO's, um, house, and they sprayed this all over his lawn. They sprayed the, the literal shit all over his lawn and on his front doorstep, and they had a sign, they changed it from Smithfield to Shitfield. And they were just saying, like, they were live streaming this whole thing, and they're like, they're like, he's spraying this on so many communities, like, he, he we're giving it back to him, you know, because he's living in this huge, probably however many million dollar home, while he's putting so many other people out mm-hmm. and like forcing them to live in shitty conditions. Um, so that that was a very interesting action. I've never really seen anything like that, so. It, it gave me joy to watch that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it really comes down to capitalism, right? Like, cap- we yeah. live in a capitalist society. When our the people that came here colonize this land, it's just been about getting money and getting more money. And, like, uh, I don't know. Like, how do we solve this problem when really what we need to be doing, it, well... You want to attack the big guys, right? Like, or, like, sway the big guys, but the big guys are shitheads, so I don't... They, like, sometimes just seem untouchable. Yep. 
Yeah, a lot of people will say that too, like, um, when we're, you know, directing our actions towards, like, Ribneck Furs, for example. They're mm-hmm. like, well, why don't you go after these larger companies? And it's like, well, because this is right here, mm-hmm. local to us, and this is an action that we feel that we can take. Like, who knows? We're not going to have any impact if, you know, I don't want to say that because it sounds very pessimistic, but, like, if you're going to go after, like, some of the huge furriers, like, mm-hmm. they're giants. Why mm-hmm. not start small and, you know, work your way up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, man. So, like, with the environmental considerations that you were just mentioning, Zan. Uh, when it comes to, like, let's say, doing more sustainable burial, right? Of course, that's going to be the most fucking expensive option, right? Is that what we're talking about here? Or is it pretty, like, price-wise, is is it accessible? Is it even available to people? Like, what, like, burying yourself as a tree? I know that's expensive, because I looked into it. I mean, all, so... Most burial practices in the U.S. are expensive. I mean, I would say are expensive. Oh, they are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so no matter what. Like, when we talk about even, um, and I mean, it's kind of like the parallel is, like, having good, nutritious food in a fucking food desert where, like, over north Minneapolis, where, like, how do you tell these people who are largely in poverty that, here, you have to go, you know, get this healthy food at, or like they don't even have access to vegan food over there um so how can we you know tell them like go vegan when you live in a food desert and like there's so many other things like transportation and shit like that so the expensive option is to eat healthfully or like eat vegan so if we take that to the like that parallel to burials and stuff like that the expensive more environmentally sustainable option because we live in a capitalist society, is to um, choose the green burial, right? I actually think that's true. I think I think like traditional burial is the most expensive because um, interesting. You, in the U.S., because you purchase the grave forever, there's mm-hmm. no like removal process, mm-hmm. so you're not like renting the space. The the idea that we have is most bodies like stay there forever the, they can't get stacked uh, in a grave so that's not necessarily the case it's just ex- like burial is extremely expensive and a lot of people don't get buried or it's their estate or um, you know there's unclaimed bodies uh, whose families or who have no family or families can't afford to pay for burial and that happens with some frequency unfortunately but I do not I um, can't remember the exact figures right now but I do not believe that and I wonder how much um, people know about that green burials even exist. Mm-hmm. I know it was like a handful of years that I found out about it just because like I'm always looking into more like sustainable and eco-friendly things, but it's not something that people even think about, especially when they're young. Like no one's putting that at the forefront, like, oh, well, how am I going to line this up when I go, that this is how I want to go. And um, I just don't know how much awareness there is around the fact that green burials exist. So that could mm-hmm. be something to kind of try to you know, speak out more about, I guess I could do that myself too, just to the people that I know. Um, but also something you said, what does, when people, um, pass away and they don't, um, have the money or family to pay for burial, what happens? Do they get cremated or who, who pays for that? I guess I don't even have any idea. So, uh, most cities and municipalities, um, have fire seals which is where unclaimed bodies go. They're usually in unmarked graves. 
and they're buried. Um, I can speak to specifically Philadelphia um, had several potter seals, which are now like parks and plazas in the city. Hold on, look, there's a ton of bodies. Wow. Do we need to treat, you know, two century old bodies? Right, like I think that's also like a question of like cultural value. Like, do we need to like revere bones, especially like at the point of like post decomposition? I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that we do, but I do think like that because our society does, it's very weird to me that we then operate in a space in which like anyone who can't afford a tombstone is also then not afforded memory or recognition after death. Um, I think that's a that's an extreme inconsistency in our society. Uh, but for in Philadelphia, they had Potter, they had many Potter's Fields up until I believe it was nineteen eighty four, and now they've been mostly cremating the whole people's remains um, for several years, and they'll do they'll bury all of the uh, remains in one grave. Oh, uh, wow! In the cemetery, so there's no like active Potter's Fields now. The Potter's Fields are the um, spaces So am I jumping the gun when I ask about, like, the, the the most environmentally sustainable option for my body being buried, like, to where you talked about uh, things being done um, to break down my, you know, the, the parts of my body and stuff like that in the most sustainable way. Is that even commonplace? That shit's not commonplace yet. It's not, like, accessible. a lot of people don't know about these things so would the financial burden fall on the family if they wanted to opt yes. yeah so mm. so they're well, the
yours. Well, right, but I, I guess I'm more so alluding to the fact that would that financial burden be more burdensome for a family who wanted that sustainable, more sustainable option than a, uh, an actual um, uh, traditional burial, what have you. I don't remember the exact figures on how all of this might mm-hmm. get into if you want to reference it in the uh, post-interview script. Yeah. Um, I did all this research in October, so I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. Oh, that, no, that's that's totally fine. That that was more of a rhetorical question, but not necessarily something for you to outright answer, but I'm. it's just something that I think about all the time. Like, these sustainable options are not fiscally accessible for many people, and that's just kind of, I think, the one thing that I grapple with mentally when it comes down to you know, I mean, I mean, I might have the, I might have the financial privilege to be able to do that just because I'm a fucking white person, but when we talk about people of color and and um, like, and just accessibility in general, financially or uh, um, even culturally, like what what are we able to even pull off right now? Yeah, and I think too something you just said that's important is it's not just one, you know financial accessibility, right? right? Like, in your example of the deserts, it's also, like, access to transportation, right? Like, time access, all of these things, right? So, because of capitalism, the system we live within, and because of the racism in the built environment, like, these things are not available to a lot of people, and they don't have access, like, people don't have access, and it's not always financial. Um, in the context of food, too, right, there's a lot of uh, government subsidies that go towards animal agriculture that make it ch- the cheaper option than vegetables. Um, so that's something that we can easily impact. But that, that's not going to do a whole lot if there are still two deserts. Right. So right, these are all interconnected. So it's not just that the sustainable option and burial is financially inaccessible. I'm frankly not sure that it is. It's just not accessible, right? Like there's two sort of technologies that are singular companies that are available in like specific spaces and only just for like allowed to practice in the U.S. Uh, and so, like, you would have to be sent to Seattle to be taken pros. Okay. And so then that flight just offsets any, right? So then, mm-hmm. for me, like, the financial accessibility is being the major question now. The question is, like, how do we actually, in, in almost any case that we're talking about, around sort of, you know, low-carbon and, and environmental justice, the question is always is access, I think, and that it's not just financial access, so that is a huge piece of it, but it's also just, like, kind of, like, awareness, cultural access, and just, like, also fit for practices around, like, you know, food, uh, burial, whatever it is, like, I think access is a major, major uh, question and something that we all need to be working on. Yeah. Absolutely, and we're, if we're talking about, you know, equity and equality and stuff like that, like, that's, that's, like, the number one thing is, you know, and, I mean, if we're taking a feminist lens to it, does, not everything is available to everybody, and that drives me mad, and then when you take environmental factors into consideration, it just gets more complicated, um, yeah. It's frustrating how difficult it can be to just be as ethical as possible because you're always, like, I just found out about how, like, cashew production is, like, super harmful and it's mostly women who are doing these jobs and it's just, like, bananas, too. Like, there's a whole other layer. Like, there's just so many things that 
I think as long as we're open to always learning and, you know, adjusting where we can. Um, but yeah, definitely I find myself overwhelmed often just mm-hmm. be, like having to research everything. And then mm-hmm. I see other people who just like consume, 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 and they don't even pay any mind to like who's behind what they're consuming. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, it, it's tough. That I think the most difficult task in my life is to just get other people to care. Yeah. Just because I care about something and think it's important and like think others should care too does not mean that other people are going to care about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, and we're at such a fever pitch right now with, I mean, it, it really just depends on what, I guess, the media determines to be most important, which fucking sucks, because the only reason why, I mean, why did George Floyd blow up, but like, you know, Jamar, or, um, is it Jamal Clark? Uh, I mean, the numerous black and brown people that died at the hands of the police and even Minneapolis Police Department. Like, why did it take him? And I'm glad that we have, you know, a larger audience kind of paying attention to this now. But it's just sad how it, like, only comes to light when these really, really shitty things happen. And then, so do we need, like, a really, really, really super shitty environmental thing to fucking happen for you to give a shit about the environment and be like, oh, maybe, maybe animal egg is not the best thing. And like, maybe I want to do some research on that. Like, yeah, it's tough for people to care until it directly like impacts them and their life and their family and loved ones and homes. And yeah, it took a fucking police precinct to burn down and like, uh, uh, mass riots here to actually make people get scared about themselves and their possible physical safety to give a shit about this stuff. And that I really struggle with that. Yeah, me too. Well, that's also the interest of finale that we're talking about too, right? And the fact that there are a lot of injustices in the world. And, but I think also feeling like in particular moments called in to other um, spaces is really important. So with this one, like, it is a moment where other things that we care about are taking a step back, and I think that's fair, and there are other times that I'm taking a step back, but like, this is a moment, I think, very specifically for, like, abolition and racial inequality, mm-hmm. and, like, also as organizers and activists, I think paying attention to those moments and being other, for other people and folks in community, um, because that is also really important, um, that it isn't yeah, that this moment isn't anything else, right? And it is horrifying um, that, you know, Minneapolis has seen three extremely high-profile uh, police murders um, in the past five years. Um, and, and yeah, why this wasn't five years ago that... And, and like, I think the question is still whether anything that happens with the Charter Commission... Um, not actually passing forward any changes to language of the city charter. Like right now, it's like the abolition can't happen. That is my understanding, which is horrifying. Um, and even like any conversation around it can't happen, um, or even steps towards. And so, you know, like why it took George's death, why it took anyone's death, why, you know, it being filmed. I don't know. It's just really hard. And I think also not the sort of balance too, or not balance, just like, I think this is a particular moment. And for me, it's really important to like not co-opt it for anything else that I'm doing, but to yes. just try and like sit within this, this, in this space and to just say like, 
just as horrifying than to show up mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Because, again, like, because it matters and, like, everything that we do in this world is intersectional and, and like, as podcast name says, right? So, like, racial justice is also, full stop, requires attention and also is, like, a feminist issue. It's also, like, an issue of environmental racism mm-hmm. and, like, environmental justice is also all these other things. And so just, like, coming to alignment in a particular moment is really important. And, like, I do think, like, we're seeing really, like, it was horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just is something that we can, at least for me, it's really important to show up for right now, specifically. Mm-hmm. I agree. Oh my gosh, Zan, I'm so glad you came and talked with us today. Like, I think this is the longest we've ever talked so far. We've been There's talking so for an hour say. and a half, yeah. And though I just, I, I appreciate your brain and your education and your, the, um, the thoughtfulness and your, art, you know, your ability to articulate what you know and what you believe in. And I'm so glad that we're friends and I love that you're back in Minnesota so I can, <laughs> I can have more access to you, like, in person. <laughs> Because I'm selfish. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously with masks on, but like more, you know, vegan scone outings and coffee dates and stuff. Until you're yeah. off to your next adventure, because I, you know, I love you for your brain, and I don't doubt that other people do too, so. Yeah, thank uh, you so okay. much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. All right, girl, I love right, you. Okay, bye, dear. Bye. Thank you. All right, and do we have anything else we want to say? I think that's the end of the episode. Yeah, I think we covered a lot of ground. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Um, Thank you to Zan for being on today. Uh, Thank you, Ashley, again for joining me. And we will see you next time. Or, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, bye-bye. Calling all Minnesotans, and maybe some non-Minnesota natives, too, if you're interested. Are you an individual who has some feedback for us or maybe just wants to rant a bit about something intersectional feministy that grinds your gears? Or maybe you got an idea for a podcast discussion topic or maybe know somebody that we, Noreen and Ashley, just need to talk to that's out there making waves and trying to fuck it up, even if that person is you? DM us on Instagram at Minersectional, PM us on Facebook, or email us at minersectional at gmail.com and let's make that happen.